please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, we will begin reading in verse 6. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion. And the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had a face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things. And for thy pleasure they are and were created. We have a spiritual view of the church presented here. Normally hidden from the eyesight of men, we deal not with things visible, but we deal with the hidden life of the church. In the midst of the church, God has been enthroned as king. And we have represented the entire membership of the body of Christ, represented by the 24 priest kings seated about the one throne of God. You will remember that these, uh, that the priests from the time of David were divided into 24 courses. And each of those courses had 24 principal men that were representative of the entire course. And so here you have a representative sample of the entire body of Christ. We have not only the membership of the church, but her ministers, the four living creatures. They are, uh, in our text, shown to be men, joining the rest of the church and singing um, Praise and thanksgiving to God because of his redemptive work for them and in them. But we uh, find them to be ministers in that they proclaim the glory of God to the church and call the church to worship in response. We have this at the end of uh, Revelation chapter 4 and verses 8 through 11. They are very much like the angelic cherubs of the Old Testament. They are the angels of the churches, the messengers of the churches in this book. They are near to God as his special confidants. 
they are uh, involved in carrying out his will in the earth. So uh, very much as we saw in the first three chapters, priest kings are involved in carrying out the government of God and his will in the earth. And they will also exhort others to likewise obey God and to do his will in the world of men. So they're very much like the angels of the old administration in that they bear these messages from God to his people. As I said, with respect to the identity of the four living creatures being men rather than angels and ministers in particular, I do hope that as we go, your confidence in the exposition will continue to grow. But as we go, I will continue to ground my doctrine and practice more broadly so that we will be sure every step of the way. Before going on to this morning's use, I wanted to just take a brief look again at verse 6, the second half. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. It's a strange expression that they would be in the midst of the throne and also round about the throne. But we can be sure of this, that they are near to the throne, nearer to it than the 24 priest kings who sit on their own thrones surrounding uh, the throne of God. But they are also in a circuit about it, ready to dash to the four corners of the earth on errands from God. He speaks and they go. And we'll see this in Ezekiel chapter 1. Note also the description of them that they have eyes, that they are full of eyes before and behind. This certainly speaks of great vision. What else could it mean? But in the sense that they look forward and backward, they've got eyes upon the throne, upon the king and head of the church, and they've got their eyes also upon their charges, the 24 elders representative of all of the people of God. Last week we uh, took one use. I hope that you will remember that we must continue in prayer to the Lord that he would provide an adequate number of officers for his church. The field is ripe to harvest even in our day. And there is more harvest than there are workers. And in this situation, the Lord Jesus has instructed us to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers out into his field. Let us do so and never forget. And let us also pray in full sympathy, remembering what it was like to... um, Desire officers and not to be able to have them. And so it is with our brethren in other places. I wanted to derive just one use this morning. You should have this in your outline. Let the officers of the church keep their eyes upon the king to carry out his will in his church. I know that this has been a a big theme in the life of our church for some time. And you might say to yourself, the pastor doth repeat himself. But if I might borrow the words of Peter, it's not tiresome for me to do so, and for you it is safe. Uh, All Presbyterians once upon a time used to believe this and do it. But over time there has been a forgetting 
And the Presbyterian churches function much more like Episcopalian churches or Roman churches as the officers feel free to introduce elements foreign to the uh, commandments and orders of the king. But here we have a lively picture in the scripture. We have an image of these living creatures. I contend these ministers with many eyes looking upon their charges, the members of the church to be sure, but also having eyes aplenty to keep their eyes upon the throne because it is not their will that they seek to do in the church of the living God, but his And they serve nothing but as conduits uh, for the proclamation of the commandments that come from the throne to the people. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1, in reading in verse 4. But here I want us to observe in particular the uh, function of these uh, cherubs, their manner of moving, and what moves them to move, if I might speak in a strange sort of way. But uh, there is a principle in them that causes them to move. And I want to uh, have a look at this, and I do believe by analogy that the same principle ought to be in the ministers of the church, the four living creatures. And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud, and a fire enfolding itself, and the brightness was about it. And out of the midst thereof is the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. And everyone had four faces. And everyone had four wings. And their feet were straight feet. And the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like the color of burnished brass and they had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides and they four had their faces and their wings just by way of note perhaps a sermon for a different day but I do want you to notice that in this symbolic representation of the of these angels of the Lord we find that God has furnished them with everything that is necessary for their action They have feet and hands and wings all for doing their work. And so it is with Christ's ministers. They will be furnished with the gifts and graces, if you will, the hands and feet and wings that are necessary to do their work. But this is not only true of Christ's ministers, but of all of his God's people. By his grace, he gives us all hands and feet and bids us work for the extension of the kingdom. Verse 9. 
Their wings were joined one to another. They turned not when they went. They went every one straight forward. I want you to notice this. This is important. <coughs> we'll see it again as we proceed. Everyone moves straight ahead. So these angels, if you imagine them all facing to the four compass points, the one in the south doesn't move south and east. It goes straight. All of these angels go straight in a straight line. And the significance of this becomes very clear as we go. As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man and the face of a lion on the right side. And they four had the face of an ox on the left side. They four also had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces. And their wings were stretched upward. Two wings of every, of every one were joined one to another. And two covered their bodies. And they went every one straight forward. Whether the spirit was to go, they went. And they turned not when they went. And now I believe we get the significance of the straight course. This is not meant to limit where they could uh, be active. The significance of this is twofold. They move at the direction of the spirit. That's the principle of motion. When the spirit bids them go, they go. And they do not turn aside from the direction that he has given them. They do what he's told them to do, and they do exactly that. They turn neither to the right hand nor to the left, but they move in a straight line. Verse 13. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire and like the appearance of lamps. It went up and down among the living creatures and the fire was bright and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures ran and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightning. I want you to notice here another principle that their obedience is ready and prompt. So the Spirit moves them and they go quick as a flash. And having performed their errand, they do not loiter. They come back quick as a flash for their next commandment. So they are ready for God's service and prompt. And uh, children, if I might... Uh, if I might just draw an application, this is something very necessary for all of us. When we receive commandments from God or from superiors, uh, we ought to yield a ready obedience. Not putting off or delaying that obedience, but doing it right away after this good example of the angels. We're ready and listening for a command. Once we've received a command, we go to perform it. And then quick as a flash, we're back for the next one. Not loitering about. This is a beautiful model of obedience. So from our text concerning the example of the cherubs, we have at least three things. And if I might uh, make a recommendation, I, I feel like I, I'm trying to explain hard things by harder things. This is very difficult, but how can you avoid it when this is the very imagery that John is drawing upon? If you want to read a, a very uh, useful and edifying exposition, old William Greenhill wrote a five-volume commentary on Ezekiel. He was a, um, one of the uh, independent ministers of the Westminster Assembly. He lectured on Ezekiel for a number of years. Uh, 
his text is full of insight and helps in understanding, but also full of warm and practical application. So if you spent time with uh, Green Hill and Ezekiel chapters 1 and 10 to get some grasp on what's happening in this text, you won't have wasted your time. But we have for our purposes three conclusions in front of us. The cherubs move at the direction of the Spirit. They do not turn aside from His direction. They go straight. And they are ready and prompt in this. And this draws, uh, helps us draw certain conclusions for the ministry. Uh, ministers and elders are to have their eyes upon God. Their ears open to the throne, listening for God's command. They certainly don't contradict that command, but neither are they to turn to the right hand nor to the left. Because as I said, the point is not their will or desire, but his. To do what he said, not contradicting, but neither adding to it. Um, And finally, uh, the ministers are to be ready and prompt to fulfill the command. Now, since all of this is drawn from these very difficult texts, I want to make sure that we know that in doing so, we are standing upon solid ground. Uh, So I uh, broaden now to some broader principles of Scripture that you will know well. Remember that the ministerial mandate is to teach the whole counsel of God. That is, all of it, not subtracting anything, but it's... But his mandate does not go beyond that either to his own things, his own interests. So his mandate as a minister and elder is to teach the whole counsel of God. What is to be believed concerning God and what we are to do in order to please God. Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. And here I um, I, uh, I take up disputation because you'll hardly ever find a a minister who would say that uh, you know he'd recognize I teach the whole counsel of God and certainly not to contradict the counsel of God, but neither can you find one in a hundred who will limit himself to the counsel of God and make the counsel of God his whole ministry. But the besetting sin of our own era is the many additions and additions that come on so thick and in such plenty that by the end of it you hardly can even recognize the Christian religion anymore. And so I take us to Titus. Uh, A great many of you will have heard a very full exposition of this in the North Country. But I do want to uh, bring to remembrance some things that we have looked, about, looked upon before. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. The general context here is Paul is and Paul's telling Titus why he's writing. I traveled through Crete. I preached the gospel. People were converted. Churches began to gather. 
But I pressed on before they were organized, saith the Apostle. I left you behind to set in order the things that are yet lacking in the churches. And first of all, I want, to make sure, I want you to make sure that there are officers provided for the church uh, that fulfill the qualifications as they have been given to us by Jesus Christ. And so he turns his attention there first, and this is where we will limit ourselves for the time being. He will address other things that are yet lacking in the churches. But first he turns his attention to the officers. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God. This is very important. Do you remember in uh, the epistle to the Hebrews, Paul says there's a great difference between Jesus Christ and Moses. Moses was a servant in God's house, but the Son is the Lord of the house. Now, you think of the old administration. Who was ever more important than Moses? And yet, he was simply a steward in God's house and not Lord of the house. And it's very interesting to find the minister of the gospel described in the same way. Not a Lord over God's heritage, to be sure. God's heritage already has a Lord and a king. But stewards in God's house to do God's will for the well-being of those who dwell in his house. And, uh, lest you think this to be far-fetched, the very next description, not self-willed. His office is not given to him so that he might do what he likes in the church. What he likes is not the point or the purpose. So he's not to be a self-willed man. If he's a self-willed man, he is an unqualified man. And so the apostle goes on, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. In the list that Paul gave to Timothy, this is described as aptness to teach. But here, uh, it's, uh, it's um, actually spelled out much more explicitly. If you were to ask Paul, Paul, what do you mean by aptness to teach? He's somebody that holds fast to God's word. You know, this is not a loose grip on it. He grabs it and he holds on to it. He knows God's word. He grasps it and he does not let it go. And this uh, makes him capable of doing a very difficult job to exhort and convince the gainsayers, those who oppose themselves. Very interesting, again, that he's not um, exhorting the faithful or convincing the gainsayers by his own words, but he holds fast to the faithful word as he had been taught. And using that, he exhorts and he convinces the gainsayers. This is the hallmark of a true and faithful steward in God's house. But we have an immediate contrast 
of some that are otherwise minded. Verse 10. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. In the churches of Crete, there were what we would call Judaizers. Uh, Jewish pseudo-Christians. Not real and true Christians, although they think themselves to be such. But obviously of the same uh, sort that Paul had problems with most everywhere that he went. Uh, Probably those who uh, added to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, obedience to the law in order uh, for men to be saved. This was, of course, particularly problematic. Problematic everywhere, but particularly among the Gentiles. These men are trying to bring the Gentiles into submission to the Mosaic law. Follow the trajectory of all of Paul's thought and you see a daunting task set before these officers. Make sure that there are elders in the churches. They must have these qualifications. Why such stiff qualifications? Because the work is very difficult. You are setting them into a battlefield where they are immediately going to have to engage people in a life and death struggle for the souls of men. Because if these false teachers are not checked, they will subvert whole houses. I mean, if you can think of, uh, you think of the church, whole families just falling altogether, falling away, being taken away from the faith. And they, rather than holding fast to the faithful word, they teach things which they ought not. Paul tells Titus, if you would help the Cretans, who are pretty thick-skinned people, you will rebuke them sharply. But not to hurt them, because he immediately says why. He gives a a purpose clause in Greek. To what purpose, Paul? Why should I rebuke them sharply? That they may be sound in the faith. And then Paul makes crystal clear what soundness in faith requires. In the negative. That they would not give heed. That they would not pay attention or give their ears to Jewish fables and the commandments of men these Judaizing teachers that are turning from the truth. So they're not going to open their ears. And he gives two things. Jewish Jewish fables and the commandments of men. Just in brief, the Jews love to do this sort of thing. Uh, It's actually um, a great body of this tradition is, uh, is captured in their Talmud, which goes all the way back before the time of Christ. It's teaching, it's traditional teaching, but finally, after the time of Christ was codified. And it has two principal parts to it. You have um, um, Gemara, which is a lot of the traditional stories that they would tell um, that were considered to be authoritative. So when you would have spaces in the biblical history, they like to fill in those spaces with their stories, the traditions of the elders. And these were considered to be authoritative. So they would tell 
stories about, um, well, we have Babel in Genesis chapter 11, and Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and there's a space here. What does Abraham have to do with Babel? And so they tell a story about Abraham being present there and resisting the work there. Or um, we get a little reference to Shifra and Pua, the Hebrew midwives of Exodus chapter 1. They tell big, long stories about these two women, who they were, how all of these things came about. They provide stories, Jewish fables. If you would be sound in the faith, you will not give ear to these things. The other thing is the commandments of men. And this, although the first is problematic, the second even more so. The Jews, as we know from the scripture, always loved to add to God's commandments. They seem to be uh, beset by the belief that God's law was not clear enough, explicit enough, nor extensive enough. So they look at the fourth commandment. God says, thou shalt remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And they say, well, uh, uh, but there's many questions. And you... And spiritual people have trouble digesting spiritual commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy as a spiritual commandment that has infinitely more to do with the life of your mind and the condition of your heart than what you're doing with your body. And if the life of the mind and the condition of the heart is right, all of the behaviors will resolve themselves. We don't need a long list. But the Jew did. How heavy a burden can I carry? They get a long list of rules about how heavy the burden can be. How far can I travel on the Sabbath day? Can I uh, walk through a grain field and pluck heads of grain and eat as I walk from my house to the church service? Not so, said the Jews. It is reaping and threshing. And it can't be done on, on the Sabbath day. Not the point at all. Now look at all of this together. The ministers have been given to the church for edification. In Paul's language, clearly to promote the soundness of the faith of God's people. And that means restricting themselves or limiting themselves to God's word, God's doctrine, God's commandments with respect to practice. And not adding their own. You see, we're in no better position than the Jews were to add our own fables and our own commandments. The net result of all of that, if it's heated, is that there's going to be a lack of soundness in faith. So you see the problem here. And the necessity that the ministers and elders limit themselves. And you start to see what I'm trying to draw here as far as the significance of these four living creatures having eyes set Upon the throne. What does the king say? And at his nod we go. And at his command we come back. And we don't turn to the right hand or to the left. We do what he commanded. We limit ourselves to that. We are ministers gathered about the throne. We do not encroach upon the throne of the king. It belongs to him. And we are simply stewards and ministers in his house. And consider the, the net result of all of this. As men have... At, and you have, to, you have to realize, we are not a different sort of people 
And this happens very easily because these additional commandments sound so very holy and pious. But if they are not the commandments of the Lord, no matter how holy and how pious they sound, it is inconsistent with a sound faith. So we must beware. And when these, when all these additional commandments start coming, if you would be sound in the faith, you will not give your ears and your hearts to these things. Remember this and you will be well. When you hear these sorts of things, say, can you prove that to me from the Bible? And only when it's been soundly proven from the Bible do you embrace it as doctrine and practice. Anything else, give no heed So we have here um, very much like the um, like the living creatures of Ezekiel. Uh, uh, ministers are to uh, carry out God's commands, but without divergence. There's a limitation set upon their ministry. And finally, um, although with less emphasis, there's to be a readiness and a promptness for this work. Turn with me to Second Timothy chapter four. Second Timothy chapter four, beginning in verse one. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. So this is the charge to young Timothy as a minister of the gospel. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. In the presence of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and with the coming judgment in view, Paul gives Timothy a charge that he preach. And not just in season, when he's prepared a sermon and is ready to stand on the Sabbath day, but out of season as well as he's given opportunity on a street corner or from house to house, in season and out of season, he's to be ready and prompt to carry out the will of the Lord and to preach the gospel for the extension of God's kingdom. I wanted to conclude with a bit of how-to for the sake of officers all of this is, is part of cultivating nearness to the throne of God. Keeping our eyes upon uh, the king. First and evidently, uh, I have very little inclination to any sort of uh, mysticism. Those of you that know may know that to be, to be true. This happens in very practical and concrete ways, but we must understand them in a spiritual way. The, uh, if we would be near to the throne of grace, we must be constant students of God's Word. Studying it and reading it uh, whenever opportunity is presented. And when we are away from its pages, meditating upon it and applying it to whatever is before us. Constant students of the Scripture. And in this way, they have open ears to the throne. Listening for the commandments of God. The old language in the Old Testament is 
Lord, how am I to go in and go out among your people? And he commands, we listen for the commands, and he teaches us how to go out, how to come in, in the household of God. In the New Testament language, uh, Paul says, study to show thyself approved, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So these are open ears uh, to God's throne. And uh, remember, part of the purpose of John's vision is to uncover the spiritual reality. If you were to observe a man doing this, he's simply sitting there and he's reading. But here the veil is lifted and we see the spiritual reality. The living creatures full of eyes with eyes set upon the throne, listening for the commandment of God so that they might do his will in his house. Uh, but officers also ought to be in the presence of the Lord by prayer. And this is one of the ways that scripture lessons become ingrained in the heart. God speaks to us in his word and we respond to him in prayer, pleading the promises. Both uh, the minister for himself as well as he pleads the promises of God for all of God's people. He prays that God will make him faithful. In carrying out what he has uh, assigned. And not departing to the right hand or to the left. That God would uh, uh, give him courage. Because in that straight path he will face the frowning faces of men. But here we, those lessons that we learn from the scripture uh, take hold of the heart. And all of this is part of living in the presence of a holy God. And all of it is part of cultivating, and I hope that we are doing this as a body, not just the officers, but cultivating a sense of the kingship of Christ by the way that we conduct ourselves in this place when we are together. We limit ourselves to God's commandments with respect to the government and the worship of His church. Not just because logically this makes sense, but because we have a sense of an enthroned king sitting in our midst and we are doing his will. I hope that when you think of the regulative principle that you think on it in this way, that the king of kings is here and we are doing his good pleasure, edifying uh, to us to be sure, but glorifying and honoring to him as the king and head of his church. Study and prayer also makes us ready and prompt for work. We have uh, been constantly before the throne of grace. Uh, and in that uh, constancy, we are ready for action. We are always preparing ourselves for action. And at his nod, we race out to do the thing that he's commanded us to do. But the work also requires great uh, diligence. We must always be about preparing ourselves. And uh, once the Lord has set a task to hand, as Solomon says, we do it with all of our might. And we continue in the work. And I have found by experience, you'll find a lot of different sorts of pastors, lots of different kinds of ministers. Some uh, roaring with the mouth of a lion. Some uh, trudging along like an ox. Um, but I have found that uh, since I am not a very gregarious sort of fellow, 
I have found that all of the opportunities have simply come by diligence. Well, the Lord has set one thing before me, so I'll try to do this one thing. And before you know it, he's opened two other doors to do uh, other things as well. Our acquaintance with the Texans came by this way. If you'll remember, there was a Marine in our midst. And they're just trying to be faithful to this Marine that was with us for a brief season. We met a family in Texas. And in meeting a family in Texas, we met 25 other families in uh, in Texas. And it all came just by simply trying to be faithful in the shepherding of one Marine who was simply with us for a short stay. So diligence in work creates opportunities for work. And when opportunities are presented, we must exercise ourselves to take advantage of these uh, opportunities. Two final things. We ought to continue to keep our eyes out for such men. Men who have a, uh, are preparing themselves by study and prayer. Men who uh, keep their eyes firmly fixed upon the Lord and are ever asking the question, what is the mind of the Lord concerning these things? As well as men of action, activity, diligence, and wisdom. And let us continue to pray that God would raise up such officers because the needs for such are great. Let us uh, do so now.